So we are in uh, Romans 16 and uh, today starting in uh, verse, uh, picking it up in verse 3, <clears throat> where he begins to, uh, uh, he begins to go through his list of greetings of people whom he wants to greet who are in the city of Rome. And uh, and he begins uh, with Pris, uh, Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila, and uh, we did a little introduction to them last week, but we'll uh, go back and cover that again today and go on. <clears throat> but uh, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about Phoebe, uh, and uh, so just by way of review, what are some of the things that we have discussed? Uh, about this woman, Phoebe, and some of the lessons we learned from her. And from the Paul, things Paul says about her. Were you about to say something there, Bob? Okay. 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 All right. Okay. So we learned uh, learned quite a bit about her just uh, from her name, uh, where she's from, uh, the things that she does. Uh, uh, There, she's kind of an unusual woman for that period of time. Uh, It's much more common to see women engaged in commerce and business and that sort of thing today than back then. It wasn't unheard of, but she is, uh, she is somewhat unusual. Uh, as uh, Bob pointed out, it, it seems like she was probably raised in a pagan home, uh, and, but at some point she came to Christ. Her life was transformed. She's a servant, it says, of the church in Cancrea. And in what <clears throat> we talked a little bit last week about about one of the ways she apparently was a servant. How, how did she, uh, how did she function in service to, to Paul himself and to apparently other Christians in Cancrea? Do you remember what we said about that? Something about that word help. Said <laughs> so she was a helper. Yeah, yeah. It, the the word has the sense or the meaning of a patron or somebody who uh, who works who serves as a patron. A patron is somebody who's usually fairly well off, and they see something that somebody else is trying to do or accomplish that they value. They want they want them to succeed or prosper in that or be able to do that, and so they provide for them financially so that they can do that. We have patrons today. We have patrons of the arts. We have patrons of the OU football team. They're able apparently to uh, raise a third of a billion dollars to, uh, to improve our football stadium over here. So, uh, so obviously we've got some big name patrons out there with a lot of money floating around so we can enhance our football stadium. Uh, and so we have patrons of the arts and we have patrons of athletics and we have patrons of education. Uh, of course, many donors to uh, to uh, colleges and universities and things like that. So we're very familiar with this idea. And, uh, it, and so a wor- the word that's used here in reference to uh, Phoebe is a word that has this idea or this thought of being a patron to it when it says she was a helper of many and of Paul himself. So we get the picture that this woman was sufficiently well off financially that she was able to be a financial assistant to Paul and his ministry and to other people. We don't know who all, of course, uh, he's referring to there, but apparently she was uh, quite generous with, uh, with the money that the Lord had provided her with. So this is one of the ways that we learn that she served. Uh, anything else about her that you remember that stands out that we talked about or about the things that Paul said about her? What did, he, what did Paul want the... Tr- want the church to do with reference to her? 
Yeah, he wanted to help her. Uh, and he uses a different word there, a different Greek word there. It's translated the same, of course, in our English. But it's a different Greek word, and it just has the idea of making yourself available to her. So here this woman is coming from Cancrea near Corinth, and she's coming to Rome. Apparently, uh, we think, on some kind of business or legal matter or whatever. And so she's coming to Rome. She's coming to apparently a strange city where she doesn't know a lot of people. And, uh, and Paul is just asking the church in Corinth to receive her into their fellowship and, and to, to uh, provide for her, to help her out in whatever she needs, to maybe help, uh, help her make contacts with people she needs to make contacts with, uh, perhaps uh, help her find a place to stay or, uh, and those kinds of things. So he's just encouraging the church to help her. And this is the way... Uh, this is the way that things were done in the first century. We don't do that so much today. We still do it a little bit, but uh, given our modern technology and modern communication and that sort of thing, uh, when we go to a strange city, we don't always necessarily think that we need to have somebody there to help us out. We just, you know, we get on the internet and we make our hotel reservations and we, you know, and we line up our rental cars and, you know, we just take care of it all. And uh, we can we can go into a city and and be there and accomplish what we want to accomplish and move on and nobody even knows we've been there. Uh, uh, but the idea of what was going on in the first century, of course, is you didn't have that kind of a situation. And so when people traveled, if at all possible, they wanted to they wanted to get help. They wanted to get assistance from other people. And so within the context of the church. Uh, you had you had a ready-made network of people to help one another and to benefit one another, and of course we still have that today. And so ideally, if we know someone who's going to some place where we know some other Christians, oftentimes we'll say, "Well, you need to contact so and so Christians," or we'll contact them and we'll say, "So and so's coming to your city. You know, help them out, uh, <clears throat> welcome them to your church, receive them into your fellowship, etc." And and that really is a very important aspect of the fellowship of believers. Uh, and and as, as Christians do that, as we practice that uh, ministry of receiving Christians from other areas, it, it develops our cohesion with the whole body of Christ around the world and around the country because we, we begin to get contacts with and make interaction with and, and become linked in many ways with Christians of other place from other places and even some oftentimes from other kinds of churches and that sort of thing. So it's still a very positive thing and and something that I think we should be giving attention to. Well, these are all things we talked about as we talked about Prisca or excuse me, as we talked about Phoebe. But then in verse three, he picks it up with uh, with he begins his greetings and he says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. And I just want to talk today about primarily about Prisco or Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, and uh, and uh, also I want to talk about somebody that they knew, somebody they were connected with. He's not listed here in Romans 16. Or, yeah, he's not listed in Romans 16 among this list, uh, but he's, uh, he is somebody that was very important in uh, Priscilla and Aquila's life, and so I want to take some time to talk about this guy too uh, today because uh, he's a guy who kind of floats in and out of the story in the New Testament, uh, but we don't very often really stop and talk about him, so I want to do that today just so you're more familiar with this particular fellow. But uh, I think last week we we talked about we talked a little bit about uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and we pick up their story in Acts chapter 18. You might flip over because we're going to refer to several things uh, in Acts 18 in the next few minutes. So uh, in Acts 18, we pick up the story about uh, about Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Paul has been traveling. This is on his second missionary journey, and he's been traveling. Uh, you know, on what we think of today as the uh, Greece Peninsula, the peninsula that Greece is on, 
the northern part of that peninsula was at the time referred to as Macedonia, and you're familiar with the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and et cetera, et cetera, uh, from uh, other places in the New Testament. Uh, so that's kind of the northern area, and the southern part of that peninsula was called Achaia, and, and, and the cities that you'd be familiar with there are cities like Athens and Corinth, okay? Well, Paul had been traveling in the northern part up in Macedonia to Philippi and Thessalonica and those cities and had been preaching and reaching out. And then he, uh, he left uh, Timothy and Silas and his co- other co-workers. He left them in Macedonia for whatever reason, I don't know. And he traveled apparently alone south and he went to Athens. And we see the story of him preaching in Athens in Acts chapter 17. You remember the story of him preaching on Mars Hill. Uh, and, then, uh, and then after uh, a while in Athens, he went over to Corinth and he began his ministry in Corinth. And he was in Corinth for about a year and a half. And when he got there, he was still alone. And he began to preach and, uh, and do what he did when he went into cities and And so that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 18. It says, after these things, he left Athens, verse 1, and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He, that means Paul, came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for by trade, they were tent makers. And so Paul comes to Corinth and carrying out his evangelistic work, trying to plant a church there in Corinth. But one of the things we discover about Paul is that, is that he often worked bivocationally. We talk about bi- bivocational pastors today. Uh, usually they're in churches uh, which uh, can't afford to pay a pastor full time and so they'll pay him a little bit and then he has to kind of work on the side uh, in his trade, whatever his trade is, in order to make a living. And Paul did this. He didn't have to do this. We read in other places, but he, but it was part of his strategy that he, that he, generally speaking, didn't want to be dependent upon the people that he was ministering to. Not that there's anything wrong with that. In fact, he makes it very clear that that's to be expected. That's the norm and that that's the way God normally wants it done. But for whatever reasons, Paul, uh, in, in many cases, didn't want to function that way. And he felt the Lord would rather have him support himself. So he would oftentimes do that. Uh, and so apparently this is what he's doing in Corinth. He doesn't have anybody else there to support him. And so he just picks up his trade. And we learn here that Paul by trade, by trade was a tent maker. Okay, And so, so he's in Corinth. He's all alone and meaning he's not, he doesn't have any of his entourage with him. And he's and he's uh, and he's preaching. Presumably, he's going into the synagogues uh, and preaching because that's always the way he would start when he went to a city. He would first go into the synagogue and begin uh, sharing Christ in the synagogue. And it apparently is in the synagogue that he encounters this Jew by the name of Aquila. And uh, Aquila is from the, as we said last week, he's from the province of Pontus, which uh, if you envision the, uh, the land mass that is now Turkey today uh, was Asia Minor at the time up on the northern part of Asia Minor up there right on the south edge of the Black Sea was this province of Pontus and Aquila was originally from Pontus uh, but had subsequently for whatever reason ended up in Rome and uh, and uh, he's married we don't know when he was married whether it was before he left Pontus or while he was in Rome or whatever but he's married to a, to a woman by the name of Priscilla, who presumably also is a Jew, although it doesn't really say that specifically, but I think we can safely assume that she probably was. And, uh, and so uh, they had been living in Rome. But we learn here in Acts 18 that they had been forced to leave Rome uh, by, the, by the decree of Claudius, uh, the, who was Caesar at the time, and he had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, we, don't, uh, we, we do know from, uh, from secular uh, history, we do know that there had been some kind of disturbance with the Jews. 
that had uh, that had prompted Claudius's edict to have the Jews leave Rome. And we don't know what that disturbance was, but there is some speculation, and I think there's probably some merit to this uh, speculation, uh, that the problem really was a problem of a dispute between the Jewish unbelievers, uh, the Jewish Jew, Jewish Jews, <laughs> or the Jew, uh, whatever, <laughs> the ones who are still practicing Judaism, and those Jews who had become Christians. Okay. Uh, one of the things that's helpful to understand as we uh, as we consider the things that are going on in the early church and in the book of Acts is that Rome had a policy in its provinces when it would come in and it would take over a province. It had a policy because oftentimes you'd have these conflicts between various religions and it would create unrest and disturbances. And so one of the ways that Rome ensured that it would be able to maintain stability within these provinces that it had conquered was it would it would give preference to the kind of the standing or the predominant religion of the province, okay? And, and, and so the other religions then would be essentially outlawed and the predominant religion was the one that Rome would recognize and that Rome would tolerate within the province. So in Palestine, of course, the predominant religion was Judaism. And so it was the recognized religion. It was the one that the officials would deal with and they would deal with the religious rulers, etc. Uh, and and, and uh, if, if somebody came along in one of these provinces and tried to, tried to start a new religion or something, it would oftentimes create conflict. That was a crime. That was illegal. And so, uh, so those people could be imprisoned or or executed or whatever for causing these disturbances. Well, we, uh, we encounter that. If, actually, if you flip over to Acts 23, uh, there's an interesting little comment that reflects this mentality. Uh, this guy, Claudius Lysias, is writing a letter about Paul to, uh, uh, to Felix, the governor. He's sending Paul to be judged or to be for Paul's case to be determined by Felix, the governor. And, uh, and this guy, Claudius Lysias, is the commander. He's a commander of about a thousand troops. And he's been responsible for Paul. He's had Paul in custody. And now he's sending Paul to Felix to have Felix uh, determine the outcome of Paul's case. And in, verse, uh, in, the, in the context of the letter that Claudius Lysias writes, uh, he says, This man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them. And I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him, verse 29, I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And uh, Claudius Lysias' point here is, this appears to be an, inner, an internal dispute within Judaism. Okay? This is not a separate religion. And this was the problem that the Jews faced in trying to get action taken against the Christians by the Romans. Is The Jews were trying to convince the Romans that this was a new religion. This was a different religion. And, and the Christians were saying, no, we're not a different religion. We are the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. We are. Uh, we believe in the Jewish Messiah. And so their argument was, uh, was uh, no, we are actually an extension of Judaism. And this is why in the early years, Christianity got little opposition from Rome because the way the Romans saw it, Christianity was, was a sect within Judaism. It was a dispute within Judaism. And since Judaism was recognized and accepted by the Roman Empire as a bona fide religion, there was no basis for legal action against them. And that's the point that Claudius Lysias is making as he writes to Felix. I can't find anything against this guy worthy of imprisonment or death, he says, uh, because this is a dispute about Jewish law. Okay. Well, so there is some argument or some uh, speculation, I should say, that the dispute that was going on in Rome, the, uh, the uh, disturbance that was going on in Rome that involved the Jews 
could very well have been a disturbance between the Jews who were not believers in Christ and the Christian Jews, the Jews who were believers in Christ. And of course, Caesar, not knowing the fine distinctions that are involved, his solution to the problem is just get rid of the Jews. You get rid of the Jews, you got rid of the problem. Of course, he doesn't realize when he does that that he's still leaving a number of Gentile Christians in Rome, but he's solved his problem. He's gotten rid of the cause of dispute. So there are many who think that that is, in fact, why Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, which he did, uh, uh, trying to remember the date here, I think this is about 49 AD, 50 AD, somewhere in that time frame. Okay. And as we talked about when we started the book of Romans, uh, after a while Claudius died, and the following, uh, and then, then following his death, eventually the Jews were the, the edict kind of became a moot point, and and the Jews were allowed to return to Rome. So that's why we find now, by the time Romans 16 is written, that uh, Aquila and Priscilla are now back in Rome. Okay, because now the Jews have been allowed. But going back to Acts 18, this is several years earlier, and. And, uh, and, and Aquila and Priscilla have been forced to leave Rome and they've come to Corinth. It appears that they are already believers by this time. They're already Christians. Okay. Because there's no record of their conversion. And as important of a role as they play in Paul's ministry and in Paul's life, it seems like if they were converted after hearing Paul, that that would have been recorded for us in the book of Acts. So it seems... It seems that Luke is presuming here that we would know or assume that they are by this time Christians. And apparently, uh, as I said, Paul encounters Priscilla and Aquila uh, in the synagogue. They hear him and they discover not only that Paul is a Christian, maybe they already know about Paul. They couldn't possibly have already heard uh, certainly about Paul and Paul's reputation. But, uh, but they discover that he's also a tent maker. And, uh, and since, uh, since Aquila himself is a tent maker, they decide to kind of go into business together. You, know? you come live with us and we'll make tents together. And so they take Paul, uh, they host Paul in their home, and, uh, and they go into business together. And, uh, and for some time then Paul works as a tent maker until finally Silas and, uh, uh, and Timothy uh, come down from Macedonia and join him. Uh, and at that point, apparently, they take the financial burden for Paul, and Paul then is free to work uh, uh, to work full time in his ministry. So it says uh, that uh, because they were the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for by trade they were tent makers, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so Paul begins this ministry in Corinth. Now, we already know from things we've learned earlier that Paul had a policy that he would only go to cities uh, and only really focus his ministry in places where Christ had not been named. So we can presume that when Paul arrives in Corinth, there is no ongoing testimony for Christ in Corinth. Okay, There's no church in Corinth. So I would presume from that that Prisca and Aquila uh, are fairly new to Corinth. They probably just recently arrived in Corinth. There's no ongoing church functioning in Corinth, and they are apparently meeting in the synagogue. Uh, and so, so then Paul takes up uh, residence with them. He works with them. And then he stays in uh, for a period of time, and then eventually he moves and he lives with somebody else we see later in the chapter. Uh, uh, but... Uh, after he's been in Corinth for about a year and a half, if you go later down in the chapter, in verse 18 it says, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Concrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus and he left them, that meaning uh, Aquila and Priscilla. He left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus and landed at Caesarea. So this is at the, this is at the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. 
and he has he has gone uh, he's gone through the early churches over in Asia Minor and visited them. He's gone up through Troas over into Macedonia, Philipp, Philippi, Thessalonica, etc. He's come down to Athens and Corinth and spent a year and a half in Corinth, and then he's ready to go back home. He's just going to go back home and. And it really doesn't tell us much about what he did when he got back to Antioch. He's just back there apparently fairly briefly. But he travels back to his home church in Antioch. And, uh, but, so he's leaving Corinth with the intention of going back to Antioch. But he's going to go through Ephesus, which is just on the other side of the body of water there. I forget the Aegean Sea or whichever one it is there. But he's on, it's just, just across the... Uh, just across the sea there from uh, Corinth and Concrea. So he's, he's, going to, he's going to go through Ephesus and then he's going to go on uh, back, uh, back home. And, uh, and it says he takes Aquila and Priscilla with him. They go with him and he leaves them in Ephesus. Okay. Now, that's at the end of his second missionary journey. So he, he leaves them in Ephesus. He goes back to Caesarea and to Antioch. He's there very briefly, apparently. And then he begins his third missionary journey and he comes over and he goes uh, almost directly to Ephesus and he spends two years in Ephesus. Again, we can conclude that there had been no prior church in Ephesus. Otherwise, Paul would not have come and spent two years there. So Paul considers Ephesus to be a church that he founded. Okay. If that's the case, it would have been at the conclusion of his second missionary journey that he founded it. Okay, After he left Corinth, he sailed for Caesarea, but he stopped in Ephesus and he left Priscilla and Aquila there. Okay, And then he went on. He spent a little bit of time there, preached in the synagogue. They asked him to say, he said, no, I've got to go back home. And so he goes back home. Okay. So, my point is, is that Ephesus is a church that he founded. And although he really spent the bulk of time there on his third missionary journey, he founded it at the very end of his second missionary journey. The significance of that is, the reason, the point I'm trying to bring that out, is Priscilla, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, he has brought from Corinth with the intention of leaving them in Ephesus. So this couple is obviously a very strategic couple. They have been with Paul. They have hosted Paul in their home in the early stages of the establishment of the church in Corinth. They have been there for a year and a half as Paul established the church in Corinth. So these people are involved. This couple is involved in the church plant, if we want to call it that, the church plant in Corinth. They're experienced church planters, if you will. And so Paul, as he's leaving Corinth, planning to go back to Caesarea, knows he's planning on going through Ephesus. He has wanted to go to Ephesus before and been prevented. That's earlier in the second missionary journey. But this is his chance to get to Ephesus. And so he's obviously has it in his mind. I'm going to Ephesus. I want to plant a church there on my way home to Caesarea. And I want to have somebody there I can depend on, I can rely on to, to care for this new church plant. Okay. So he leaves uh, Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus when he goes home. And then when he returns back to, on his third missionary journey, he comes back through and the first, about the first place he goes is uh, to Ephesus. And he spends two years there. And apparently Priscilla and Aquila spend that two years with Paul there in Ephesus. Okay, that's all history. Uh, but it helps us get a little bit of a picture about this couple. Uh, they are Jews. They are Christians. They love the Lord. They are involved in the Lord's work. They are, uh, they are experienced church planters, if you will. They have helped plant a church with Paul in Corinth. They helped plant a church and then foster and develop that church uh, in Ephesus while Paul is gone and he entrusts them with the church in Ephesus. Okay. Well, we'll learn a little bit more about them as they go on. But in Acts 18, there's something that's interesting happened, and this will be a little bit of a diversion, as I say. There's something interesting that happens while they're in Ephesus and Paul has gone home to Caesarea and to Antioch. 
it says in uh, uh, in verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the Scriptures. Uh, excuse me. He was... Uh, he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So we have Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. Paul is gone. And while they are there in Ephesus, this Jewish man named Apollos shows up. Now, it says Apollos was from Alexandria. Alexandria is a city in Egypt. And it's a very significant city to the Jews. Alexandria had a significant Jewish contingent there, a Jewish uh, population in the city of Alexandria, and Alexandria was a very uh, 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 a very well-known city as far as uh, it had a great library, a famous library, uh, 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 is well known for its scholarship, etc. And particularly, it was well known to the Jews for the for the Jewish scholarship. There were a number of Jewish scholars who lived and and uh, practiced in the city of Alexandria for many centuries. You've oftentimes heard me refer to the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament was, of course, written in Hebrew, but uh, by the time you get to those centuries just before Christ was born, uh, many Jews in the dispersion around the world were losing their Hebrew. They were, they were no longer fluent in Hebrew and they were becoming Greek-speaking Jews. And so it became necessary to have their scriptures translated into Greek. Okay? And so we have a number of scholars in Alexandria who translate the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, into Greek. And we call that translation the Septuagint. It is actually the translation of the Old Testament that was most influential in the early church because now the church has a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Of course, many, uh, many early, early Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, would never have had access to the Old Testament if it weren't for the Septuagint. Okay? So the Septuagint was translated sometime around 200 to 300 B.C. It's called the Septuagint, the number uh, 7, Septuagint, uh, 70, excuse me, because it is believed that there were 70 Jewish scholars from Alexandria who worked on the translation of the Septuagint. Okay? I tell you all this to point out to you that why this guy coming from Alexandria is no academic slouch. It says he is a guy who was, in, in my translation, it says eloquent. Uh, actually, that word could be translated scholarly or educated, or trained, okay? So, it could be translated either way, and there's a little bit of disagreement as to how it could be translated, but obviously it says the guy was mighty in the Scriptures. Uh, uh, he was, in, And it says he was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in the Spirit. And so, somehow, somewhere, this guy who was thoroughly trained in the Old Testament Scriptures had heard about Christ, okay? Now, we don't know exactly what he heard because it says he was only familiar with the baptism of John. So, it seems like, even though this is now uh, 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 quite some time after Christ's death and resurrection, 
it appears that this guy has, has really not clued into the whole story. So he's heard the preaching of John, or he's heard about the preaching of John. He understands how John's preaching coincides with the Old Testament scriptures with which he is so familiar. And he's fervent in spirit. He loves God. He loves the ways of God. And so he's out as an itinerant teacher or preacher, if you will, going around preaching what he knows, but he doesn't know the whole story. Okay, And so he comes to Ephesus and he's fervent in spirit and he goes to the synagogue because he's a Jew. He goes to the synagogue and he begins telling them about this man, Jesus, whom John had prophesied or John had spoken of and that John was his forerunner and there's this Jesus and he's the Messiah and all this sort of stuff. Okay, But he doesn't have the whole story. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they're there in the, in the synagogue and they hear Apollos speaking and they go, <laughs> this, guy, this guy needs the rest of the story. Okay? So it tells us that um, um, in verse 26 it says, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So... Um, Notice in verse 25, it says, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. But it says that Priscilla and Aquila instructed him in the way of the Lord uh, more accurately. So, so this guy knew the way of the Lord. Now, when he says the way of the Lord, presumably what he's speaking of is, is, is God's redemptive plan or how God's plan in redemptive history. And he was familiar with this. He knew this. He understood that a Messiah was coming. He knew uh, that John, apparently that John the Baptist had baptized the Messiah and that Messiah was around, etc. So he apparently knew these things about the way of the Lord. But he didn't have the whole picture. So Aquila and Priscilla, there in Ephesus, they hear him speaking in the synagogue. And it says they take him aside and they instruct him more accurately in the way of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to have been there. You know, I don't know how this happened, but I have a hunch, you know, that after church, they said, come to Sunday dinner with us. Come to Saturday dinner with us. <laughs> come to dinner with us. Let's have a talk. And, you know, I can just envision them sitting around the table there in Aquila and Priscilla's home and Aquila and Priscilla telling him the story of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and ascension into heaven and the promise of his return. And if you just imagine just sitting there and seeing this guy who's already on fire for God, who's already excited about the things of God, who already knows about a lot of this, but he just doesn't have the full picture to get the rest of the story. You know? That must have been... Uh, uh, quite a Sunday Saturday dinner. <laughs> Got to remember these are Jews, right? So whatever, you know, that's just how I envision it. I don't know how it actually happened, but they instructed him in the way of the Lord more accurately. And then it tells us that he wanted to go on to Achaia. That's Athens and Corinth, right? Okay. So he wanted to go on to Achaia. And it says the brethren, and that would imply that by now there are more Christians in Ephesus than just Aquila and Priscilla. It says the brethren encouraged him. Now, I thought that was kind of interesting. Because here you are, you're a brand new church, right? You're a brand new church. You're in this big, huge pagan city. You're just getting started. There's just a handful of you. Paul's been there and then left you high and dry and went off to do his thing and you're just struggling to get along. And here comes this guy, this guy thoroughly trained in the Scriptures, on fire for God. He comes into the city. You teach him the, you teach him the rest of the story and he incorporates that into his preaching. The guy is eloquent. He's scholarly. He's trained. He's on fire for God. And now he wants to leave. <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> I thought, well, now let's think about this, Apollo. That's right. That's right. Well, 
you know, I'm thinking, you know, what would a church do today in, in, the, in the situation of the church in Ephesus? We need this guy. And of course, you know, they're going great guns. They've been, you know, that's a big church. They got, you know, they're doing great. They don't need Apollos. We need Apollos. But that wasn't their attitude. They said, they said, you want to go to Corinth? I think that's a great idea. God wants you to go to Corinth? I think that's a great idea. You ought to go to Corinth. And they gave him a letter of commendation. They, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago about letters of commendation, right? That's what the thing about Phoebe was about. Okay, So they gave him a letter of commendation to say to the Corinthian church, here comes this guy, turn him loose. <laughs> you know? And so, so Apollos then goes to Achaia. And it says when he got to Achaia, the it greatly encouraged the believers. They were greatly encouraged. It says because he was, he was, uh, uh, how does it say it says, uh, he was, um, uh, for, it says, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So he comes to Corinth, or to Achaia, and presumably Corinth. He comes to Corinth. And he begins to he begins to preach and he begins to and he goes into synagogues and he goes in public places and he is and the Jews are arguing with him and they're all upset because he's preaching Christ and he's refuting them and he's powerfully demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ and this is getting the believers all really excited. Okay. Well, there's a whole lot more to the story about Apollos. We don't know uh, all the details. But what we do know from Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians is that Apollos was very effective in Corinth. And in fact, a number of people became believers. So it wasn't just that he was encouraging believers, but he was actually seeing people saved. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that, that, that some of the church in Corinth had become believers through Apollos. And in fact, apparently, there have been enough people that Paul, or excuse me, that Apollos had significantly influenced in Corinth, enough people he led to Christ, that you started having a problem in Corinth with people choosing sides. Okay, now they weren't choosing sides because there were sides to choose, they were making the sides. What do I mean by that? Well, they were saying, some were saying, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, some of you are saying, I'm of Cephas, some of you are saying, I'm of Christ. And so, and, and Paul was reprimanding them for that, that, they, that there are these divisions that are developing within the Corinthian church, and they are developing around these great men of God. Okay? So, when you read 1 Corinthians and you read about people aligning themselves with Apollos, don't get in your mind that there was something about Apollos that was causing divisions or causing factions. It wasn't Apollos. It was the people he had influenced and the people he had led to Christ. We can no more blame Apollos for the divisions in Corinth than we can blame Paul or Peter or Christ. Okay? We can't blame them. We don't blame them. So let's not blame Apollos. But what this does tell us about Apollos is how profoundly effective uh, he was in Corinth. Okay? So all of this is a result of this couple back in Ephesus who were willing to take the time to take this guy under their wing, to pull him aside, and to explain the way of God to him more accurately. And so, they train this guy, Apollos. He becomes tremendously effective in the early church. And he goes to Corinth, and he's tremendously effective in Corinth. And then we find out that he's still going on many years later. So that when Paul writes to Titus in the book of Titus, which is now many years later, or several years later anyway, he's writing to Titus, and Titus is on the island of Crete, and he instructs Titus, he says, now, he says, I want you to help 
Apollos, and he mentions another guy, a lawyer, and he mentions these two guys. He says, I want you to help them on their way. Now, we don't know whether that means that Apollos was in Crete and was getting ready to go somewhere else, or whether Apollos was simply going to be traveling through Crete. And But the point is that Paul considered Apollos' ministry important and significant, and he wanted to encourage Titus to make sure that he had everything he needed. So we see that several years later, Paul and Apollos are still working as a team in, in some way or, or working together. Not only that, but in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, is in, back in Ephesus again as he comes back on his third missionary journey. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And he mentions to the church in Corinth that he had been trying to get Apollos to go to Corinth. So apparently by this time, Paul is, Apollos is either back in Ephesus or he's somewhere else other than Corinth. And Paul is trying to urge him to go back to Corinth. So even though he said all these things earlier in 1 Corinthians about Apollos's, about people aligning themselves with Apollos, this is no impediment to Paul. Paul doesn't think, well, I want to keep Apollos out of Corinth because people are aligning themselves with Apollos instead of with me. That's not the way Paul thinks. Paul thinks, I think, I, I think Apollos needs to get to Corinth. And, and so in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I think it's in verse 9, he says, I'm trying to get Apollos to go back to Corinth, but he's not ready to go yet. So hopefully he'll get to you when he's got time. That's basically what he says. Okay. So all of this is to present the picture, help us get the picture of Apollos as this tremendously effective evangelist and, and uh, teacher who is what he is in part because of what Priscilla and Aquila have done. Okay? Well, so leaving Apollos aside, let's go back now and, and think about uh, Aquila and Priscilla again. Because now in verse 4, Paul points out to us something about them that we don't read anything about in the book of Acts. But he says in, uh, 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 he says in, in verse 4, he says, Who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So we learn that at some point, Aquila and Priscilla laid their necks down for Paul. They saved Paul's life. We don't know the details. We don't even know when it happened. Okay. Now there was, when Paul was in Corinth, there was a, there was a disturbance in the synagogue on one occasion. Could have been there. When he was in Ephesus, the second time when he got to Ephesus, uh, after he'd been there a while, there was a major citywide riot uh, and uh, the Christians were in great jeopardy in that situation. Particularly, Paul was in great jeopardy. All this is in, in, uh, in, in Acts. It's recorded for us in Acts. And so it's possible that it was there during the riot in the city of Ephesus. Uh, or it could have been some other time. We, have no, we really don't know. The, the word that's used there is the idea of somebody lays their neck down. It's the idea of somebody who comes to the chopping block and gets down and puts their head down on the chop, puts their neck on the chopping block. That's the word that's used. And of course, it's used, uh, it's used to, to communicate the idea of somebody who really takes a risk. They really put their life on the line. Now, I'd like to know what they did. <laughs> Wouldn't you? We don't know. But Paul says, not only am I thankful for them doing this, but he says, so also are all the churches of the Gentiles. So even though we don't know, <laughs> apparently all the churches of the Gentiles in that area of the world were familiar with what Aquila and Priscilla had done. And actually, I'm pretty glad too they did it. Because whatever they did, they did before the book of Romans was written. And several other epistles too. And so we would not have the book of Romans to study. All this wonderful truth about the gospel, we would not have had it not been for this couple 
who considered Paul's life more valuable than their own. And they laid their life down for Paul. Or at least they were willing to. They risked their lives for Paul's sake. And then finally, in the next verse, he says, Greet the church that is in their house. Now, this is by time they're not, by this time they're back in Rome. Okay, so they've been to Corinth, they've been to Ephesus, now they're back in Rome. And we do know that they are now hosting a church in their home. Their facility and so the church needs a place to meet. Well, you come meet in our house. Okay? But that's not the first time they've done that. Because in Paul's letters, we find out, uh, in, in Corinthians, we find out that while he's in Ephesus and while they're in Ephesus, they're hosting a church in their home in Ephesus. So these people, when they're in Corinth, they host Paul in their home. When they're in Ephesus, they host a church in their home. When they go to Rome, they host a church in their home. So I want you to get this picture of Priscilla and Aquila then. What do we know about them? Well, we know that they were willing to take a guy involved in Christian ministry and put him up in their home and work with him, help facilitate him doing what he needed to do. To work as a tent maker so he'd be free and at other times to go out and preach and they provided him a place to live. We know that they assisted then, of course, in that church plant in Corinth. We know that they were willing to go to Ephesus, a brand new city where there was no Christian testimony, that they were willing to go there knowing that Paul was not planning to stay. They were willing to go there and to be involved in that church plant in Ephesus. We know that while they were there in Ephesus, this man from Alexandria, Apollos, comes and they, however long it took, I don't know, maybe it was just one afternoon, maybe it was, maybe it was weeks of training, I don't know, but they tutored this man in the faith. They lit, light that fire even greater. And then when he wanted to serve God, they sent him on with encouragement. And then at some point, they risked their necks for Paul. And all along, whenever they could, simply hosting a church in their home. Well, I was thinking about all that. And I was thinking about how it says there that when they took Apollos aside, they instructed him in the way of the Lord more accurately. Well, to do that, they had to know the way of the Lord, right? They had to know God's way. Now, as I pointed out, when he's... When Luke is referring to that in Acts, and he's talking about the way of the Lord, he's, he's of course talking about God's overall plan of redemption, how God is working in redemptive history to accomplish his purposes. But what struck me as I was thinking about that phrase, the, about the way of the Lord, and realizing that it's used in the, this broader, more general sense, what struck me about Priscilla and Aquila is they were a couple who not only saw the way of the Lord in the big picture, but they saw the way of the Lord in the minutiae, in the little things. They, were, they had the, the spiritual discernment to know, we should take this guy in our home. <laughs> yeah, we, we should bring this guy in. You know, he's a tent maker. We're, you know, we can work together. We can facilitate. This is what God is doing in Corinth right now. And we can be a part of what God is doing in Corinth right now just by taking this guy into our home. And we'll work, we'll do, we'll work with him. We'll make tents with him. And we'll facilitate this whole process. And, uh, and when Paul is getting ready to go to Ephesus... This is the work of God. This is the way of God. This is, what, this is how God is working redemptively in the world. He's wanting to start a church in Ephesus. We can be a part of that. Here, we're tent makers. We can make tents anywhere we go. So we'll pack up our, our, our tarps and our thread and, and our household goods and we'll move to Ephesus. And we get to Ephesus. We'll 
We'll stay there when Paul has to leave and we'll help plant that church there because that's the way of God. That's where God is working. That's what God is doing. And they're sensitive to that. They want to be a part of that. And Paulus comes into town and they go, hey, this thing's of God. We want to be a part of this. We're not just going to let this guy kind of wander around telling a half-truth. We can take this guy aside and we can, we can mentor him. And so they mentor him. And then when he wants to go on and do something else, they don't try to cling to him and hold him. They send him on and they bless him and they commend him to go to Corinth. And he goes to Corinth and he has a tremendous ministry in Corinth and other places. And he works with Paul for years to come. Okay. And, then, and then at some point, Paul's life is in danger and they understand the way of God and they lay their own lives on the line because they recognize how important Paul is to what God is doing. And, and then as they're going through these church plants and they're involved with these churches, they realize, well, people just have to, just very simply, people have to have a place to meet. People have to have a place where they can come together and they can fellowship together. And we can do that in our home. We can open the doors to our home and we can welcome people into our home. So, so they understood the way of God in the big scale, but I think they understood the way of God in all these little things. And so they're this tremendous couple. We, you know, we only have a few verses scattered here and there throughout the Scripture, but when we piece them all together, we get this picture of this really cool couple who were just available to God. Whenever they saw God moving and working and they saw where they could plug in, they plugged in. Well, as I was thinking about Priscilla and Aquila and I was thinking about all these people we're going to talk about and we'll move much faster in the weeks to come as we go through the rest of these names. But, but I was thinking about them and I was thinking, you know what I often, how I often kind of think when I read these stories of these great saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, you know, there's just something special about Abraham. There was something special about David. There was something special about Joshua. There was something special about Daniel. So, of course, God could use them in some really great ways, Right? But I was reminded of that verse in James chapter 5 where James is encouraging us to pray for people to be healed. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the sky produced its rain and the earth produced its fruit. But the key phrase there is what? A man with a nature like ours. And when we look in Hebrews chapter 11 and we look at that long list of those great people of God, right? Those, those great Bible stories we all learned about when we were kids, you know, when we were crumb crutchers and, you know, and, uh, and, and, and we're here in our Sunday school teach us about, you know, killing giants with a slingshot and, and knocking down walls by walking around the city and all, you know, and all those stories in our eyes just get really big and we go, wow, that's pretty. You know how every single one of those things was accomplished? According to Hebrews chapter 11. Not a one of them was accomplished because that individual, that particular saint, had something you don't have. Not a one of them. Every one of them was accomplished simply because those people believed God. He goes on to say that in Hebrews 11. He says, you know, who by faith, he says, conquered kingdoms and etc., 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 etc. Who by faith? And so when I read about Phoebe and when I read about read about Aquila and I read about Priscilla, see, it's very easy to say, well, you know... The, there was something special about them. So God picked them and God used them. 
But no, they're people with a nature like ours. And if we could just have eyes of faith like they have eyes of faith, like they had eyes of faith, if we could just have eyes of faith, we could see this is what God is doing. This is the way of God. And this is my opportunity. This is my chance to plug in here. You know, is it to welcome a Phoebe? To help her in something she's doing? Is it to be a Phoebe and be a patron to others? You know, is it to be a, an Aquila and a Priscilla and take somebody into my home to enable them to be able to do the work of God? Or to receive a church into my home to fellowship in my living room week after week after week? Or to lay down my life for somebody who needs my life laid down for them? You know, and on and on. And so all these people are just examples to us of what we can accomplish for the kingdom of God, even with our nature, if we'll just believe God. Okay? Well, next week, I promise you, we'll go on. Pick up the last half of five and, and we'll cover quite a few of them next week.